uh, as uh, while you're turning to while you're turning there, I will um, say let me say uh, a couple things. One, partly to give you time to find it, because as I mentioned last week, Hosea tends to be one of those uh, books that gets lost among the prophets. Uh, so um, uh, let me uh, just a reminder. Um, it's our practice here at Grace Covenant um, to. Uh, to preach through books of the Bible, uh, many of you are used to this by now. Um, we we make our way. We tend to bounce back and forth between Old Testament, New Testament. I try to balance, you know, length and style and kind and all that sort of stuff. But um, uh, it's our conviction that uh, that the Bible is indeed God's word, and all of it is inspired by God and profitable for us as his people. Uh, and so uh, that means we, from time to time, tackle books like Hosea. Uh, Hosea chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 1, even though last week was uh, we really sort of introduced Hosea with uh, verses 1 and 2. Um, we'll focus on the rest. Well, you see the sermon text printed there. Um, and if you haven't already noticed, it is on page 751 if you're using one of the pew chair, chair pew Bibles. Um, let me also say, uh, after we finish reading, uh, and, and some of you will know this uh, all too well, uh, you don't want to close your Bible and put it away. Um, you're going you're gonna to need it, uh, partly because we're not here to hear me. We're here to hear what God has to say. And so uh, my practice is to try to sort of, hey, look, look at this verse, look at this verse. But um, you're going to get a couple of sword drill practices uh, this morning also, uh, both Old and New Testament. So uh, make sure you keep your Bible uh, handy. Um, I will. I, it is our practice normally to stand when we read God's word together. Um, since we're reading the entire chapter and then verse one of chapter two. You may remain seated. Now let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Now the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, the northern kingdom. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and give... And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom for, by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. For I will have for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. 
And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, you are the one who uh, inspired these words, words, you have preserved them. It is your uh, function, if you will, uh, your responsibility within the Godhead uh, to be at work in and through these words now. Would Would you open our ears to hear? Would you soften our hearts to embrace? Uh, that we might hear and believe and understand, and more importantly, that you would use this, your word, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Um, I guess maybe this isn't always true, uh, but it seems like it ought to be true, right? I mean, there probably are some people out there, maybe even some of you in this room, who kind of go, yeah, I I didn't really work that hard. Um, But it seems like naming our children ought to be kind of a significant deal, right? I mean, you think of the the times you have spent agonizing over, you know, you've got nine months, right? You know you're pregnant, you're expecting children, you have nine months to think about, what are we going to name our kids? And what's funny is, with our kids at least, When John was born, we had a boy name. We didn't have a girl name. We couldn't really, we kind of had a girl name, but we were like, eh. When Lucas was born, we had a boy name. We kind of were, eh, about the girl name. When Mary Alice was born, we had a girl name, but we were kind of, eh, about the boys. It's funny how that worked out for us. But it's, you know, you may do a little genealogy search. Let me find some cool ancestors and name my kids after them. Um, I'm a big history buff, so I'm going to name my kids after these famous people in history. Uh, maybe you just went out and to the library and checked out the baby name book and, you know, randomly selected some things. But the reality is n- naming children is a significant conversation. It's a, it's a significant discussion. It's a significant event in the life of most parents. Then there's Hosea, who didn't bother going to the library to check out the baby name book, who didn't bother thinking, well, you know, my father's name is Beery. I'll name a son after my father. Or let's name, um, you know, out of our, our children after the, the famous kings of, of Israel or Judah or after Abraham or David or. Hosea doesn't get any of that. Instead, he gets clear instructions from God when his children are born. This is the name that you will choose. 
The reality is when, when we choose our children's name, we are actually wanting to communicate something. They're related to, you know, our, our parents, our grandparents, whoever we choose to name them after. It communicates. We're fans of so-and-so back in ancient history. Naming actually, we, we actually are communicating something. You may name a child after a best friend when you were growing up. And, and you're communicating something to and about that friend. But that's true here also. That the names that God tells Hosea to give his children communicate something. First of all, I want you to see the names are God's judgment on his people. Hosea and Gomer have three children and already you're going, hold on, is that true? Um, Okay, it's possible that child two and three aren't Hosea's. That's possible. It's not required, but it's possible. Because notice that... It's very clear in verse 3. She conceived and bore him a son. That is absent in verse uh, 6. That is absent in verse 8. However, and I'm not going to get bogged down in how the Hebrew sort of plays out. There are other words missing too. That we have supplied in English that are implied in the original Hebrew, but that aren't actually there. So it's entirely possible that the writer is simply shortening his report, his account of the the child naming. Because you notice also he then lengthens his account of the meaning of the name itself. So it's certainly possible that child two and child three don't belong to Hosea, but it's not a requirement. The point of the passage isn't Really even to make clear whether no mercy is Hosea's daughter or not. Whether not my people is actually Hosea's son or not. For that matter, so far in the book of Hosea, the relationship of Hosea and Gomer isn't even really the point. It's not his marriage to a a, um, wife of whoredom, verse 2. That is the focus, at least not yet. The emphasis in the chapter is on the names of the children and what those names signify. The firstborn is Jezreel. Maybe you, maybe you, some of you I've talked to, some of you have restarted your read through the Bible in a year plan. Right? Wherever you are, and if that's you, if you've started at Genesis 1 and you're reading three, four chapters a day, whatever it is, whatever your plan is, you haven't gotten to Jezreel yet. You will. It, it's, it's a place, it's not a person. It's a city, it's a valley, but it's, it's not a person. Um, in Judges 6 and 7, Gideon defeats Midian. Uh, The the judge Gideon defeats the Midianites with his 300 army men. You have to put army in quotes. In the valley of Jezreel. Um, There comes a time when um, in 1 Kings 21, 
Men, you may remember all of this. When King Ahab and his wife Jezebel decide that they will falsely accuse Naboth, have him stoned so that they can take his vineyard in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel is a name that means to the Israelites bloodshed. It's a place of war. It's a place of 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 death. It's a place of fighting. It's a place where God's judgment has been executed on the wicked. It's a place where the wicked have killed the righteous. Um, but it's still a place of bloodshed, a place of of war and destruction and death. I wonder how many people in the last however many years, you know, you can, you can almost picture those of you with kids young enough, right? You, you can almost picture Sean and Kate in their debate. What are we going to name our kids? I'm, I'm guessing the sentence, hey, honey, what would you think of the name Chernobyl? I'm guessing that never, or what would you think of the name Auschwitz? That, that doesn't happen. Because we associate with both of those things terrible, horrible destruction. That's the firstborn child of Hosea and Gomer. Not, hey, honey, what would you think of the name Jezreel? But, hey, honey, we're naming him Jezreel. We're going to name him after this, this site of, of bloodbath and, and death and destruction and and places where God's judgment is poured out on the wicked and places where the wicked have wrongly uh, d- destroyed the righteous. In fact, notice verse four and five. I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Turn with me to 2 Kings. I told you you're going to need your Bibles handy. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 9. While you're turning there, here's an advertisement for our men's Bible study on Wednesday nights. We literally started however many years ago um, in Joshua 1 and have been reading ever since. And we just covered 2 Kings 9 back in the fall. 2 Kings 9. Look at verse 6. We'll just pick up there. Um, so he uh, arose and went into the house. Je, uh, Jehu went into the house to meet with this young man, servant of Elisha the prophet. Uh, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king. Je- uh, so Jehu is being anointed king over Israel, over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel, that's Ahab's wife, the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants, servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel. And none shall bury her. So... 
there's this reminder. This firstborn son is a reminder of the wickedness and evil, the bloodshed that has taken place in the valley of Jezreel. Now the reality is Jehu was carrying out God's clearly given command. I'm anointing you king over Israel and I want you to go and carry out my judgment on Ahab and Jezebel. Why? Because they have been slaughtering my prophets. You remember Israel has no good kings. Not a single godly king in the northern kingdom ever. They're worshiping Baal. They are following after all sorts of idols and all sorts of of pagan gods. And so the reality is when Jehu carries out this judgment on Ahab, he should also have restored a right worship of the Lord their God. And he doesn't. Israel is perpetually and pervasively guilty of idolatry. That's their sin. That's the, the, the key, the, the real sin issue at the heart of the northern kingdom. Jeroboam 1 began worshiping idols and every king after him has followed in his steps. And so Hosea's firstborn son is a reminder. It's a, it's a warning. It's a judgment of God on his people that, that you have been shedding blood there and I'm going to destroy you there. I'm going to bring you to an end. The place of, of Israel's military might will be the place of her military defeat. I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. See, how can a people who worship pagan gods be the instrument of growing God's kingdom? Was that not really sort of the aim of Israel's military? I mean, the reason God's people would would have a military in this context was to grow God's kingdom, to expand the people over which he rules in the land and and places that he uh, rules and governs. But here, these people, they can't be the army of the Lord if they're serving Baal. They can't be the army of, of God if they're neglecting the first commandment right off the bat and worshiping other gods. Do you hear the judgment? Israel is being rejected. God is is gradually rejecting Israel as his people. The firstborn Jezreel um, reminds us that these these names are God's judgment on his people. There's a second child, a daughter. Her name is no mercy. Lo Ruhamah in in Hebrew. Some of your English translations will say Lo Ruhamah instead of no mercy. There, see, you just learned a Hebrew word, Hebrew phrase that will get you nothing in life. Why is Israel a nation at all? Why does Israel have a border? Why does Israel exist? 
why is Israel not, you know, still enslaved in Egypt? Is it not because of God's mercy? You, you go back and read. In fact, we did this. When was, when was Exodus? I've lost track of when we preached through Exodus. But back early in Exodus, he hears the cries of his people in, in bondage, in slavery in Egypt, and he has mercy on them. And delivers them from slavery, delivers them from bondage, brings them out of Egypt, takes them, sets them down in a land where that's flowing with milk and honey, where they get to harvest fruit and vegetables and goods that they didn't plant. And it's all because of his mercy. Israel's existence is a consequence, it's a, a, an effect of God's mercy on them. And so Hosea and Gomer have a daughter. Her name is No Mercy. Why? Well, because God tells us, I will have no mercy on them. I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. The judgment continues. I'm going to defeat you because I have no mercy on you. Then they have a third child, not my people, lo ami in Hebrew. There you go, more Hebrew if you want that. You know, imagine, imagine you get Hosea and Gomer's birth announcement. We would like to Rejoice with us as we celebrate the birth of our child, not my people. And of course, the people on the streets are going, I see, pretty sure Hosea is not the dad. Because Hosea just named his child, not my people. Like that must be an indication that he's not actually the father. It sure sounds like that's not Hosea's Son, but again, that's not the point of, that's not the real heart of the question of chapter one. The aim of these names isn't what is their relationship to Hosea. The aim is what is Israel's relationship to God? What is God's relationship to? To Israel. He is rejecting them because they have pervasively and perpetually rejected him. Do you remember the the promise to Abraham in Genesis 17? I will be God to you and your descendants after you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And this passage says. Now he's removing his covenant promises. He's removing his covenant faithfulness. So wicked has Israel been that God is now defeating their army, defeating them as a nation. They will come to an end in the valley of Jezreel. He will no longer have mercy. He is rejecting them as his people. Israel's never been faithful. Israel has never been faithful to God and his love for her. She has perpetually given herself to idols. She's rejected his advances, if you will. His 
wholehearted devotion to Israel as his bride, he has she has rejected him. You know, if you were to ask a question or if I posed the question to you, what would you consider the greatest sin issues, the sin dangers to the church today? My guess is, what are the greatest sin problems that, that, that we face in the church today? My, my guess is, most of us would focus on the 7th, the 8th, the ninth, the 10th commandments. Most of us would focus on sexual sin, 7th commandment. Greed, 8th commandment. Talking about each other, saying things about each other behind her, the ninth commandment. My guess is we would kind of start there. The real dangers in the church, well, we see this all the time. These are the things that, that we're talking about and we watch as, the, as sexual sin and, and, and greed and theft. I wonder how many of us would point to the first commandment. I wonder how many of us would say, well, no, the real issue is we don't worship God, we worship our comfort. We don't worship God, we worship our pleasure. We don't worship God, we worship ourselves. We don't worship God, we worship the things that this world has to offer. I mean, for that matter, we could probably use our view of the fourth commandment as evidence of how we view the first and whether the 7th, 8th, and ninth really matter to us at all. We ignore the command to honor the Lord's Day and then get all in a fuss about sexual pervasive sins around us. Clearly, that doesn't mean ignore the sexual sin around it, right? Clearly, we're not saying forget about that. But the question becomes... If he has given us clearly given commands to honor him and to worship him and to have no other gods before him, maybe we should start there. Because that's that's what the names of these children are doing to us. They're reminding us that sexual sin, while a problem, is merely a reflection that we've already rejected the first commandment. Israel is slowly losing her relationship with God because of her pervasive, perpetual disobedience. The names of these children are God's judgment. Second, though, I want you to see in this passage, and I, will, I don't mind telling you now, that is by far the longest <laughs> of the three points. Um, the second judgment is a warning. And I don't know why this thing keeps falling off. Um, but the names are God's judgment. Two, judgment is a warning. Look at verse 7. Don't read the first six verses and assume that God has changed, He's still merciful. 
In fact, he promises, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord, their God. He is still merciful. He's still faithful. Judah will be saved. Why? Well, I mean, because they're better, right? Because they're altogether righteous. It's the north. I mean, those are the sinners. But the people in the south have always done everything right. They don't ever do anything wrong. They have been perfectly faithful and obedient to God from the very beginning. Right? I mean, clearly Judah's going to be saved because they're better than Israel. Well, if, if Judah's going to be saved because... They aren't Israel because they haven't done wrong like Israel, then they don't need God's mercy. The fact that God promises I'm going to be merciful to Judah suggests to you that they need my mercy. They are guilty. They're not actually if they weren't guilty, they wouldn't need mercy. They would just get what they deserve. They would get justice and that would be it. But God says, I'm going to be merciful to Judah. I'm going to save them. I'm going to deliver them. For that matter, it's about a hundred years or so. And Judah will not exist. We're about a hundred years away from Judah being carried into exile in Babylon. Why? Well, they're being chastised for their sins. For their own guilt. For their own shame. For their own rebellion. But he's going to save them. He's going to deliver them, not by an army, but by himself. I'm going to save them, not by bow or sword or war or horses or horsemen. I'm going to save them by Yahweh, the Lord, their God. God hasn't changed. He's still merciful and he will show mercy to the house of Judah. But there's something else I want you to notice in verse 8. There's a, a time stamp in verse 8, believe it or not. I love time stamps in Scripture. It's so helpful. <clears throat> Do you see the time stamp? When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived a bore son. That word when tells you there's a, a time here. And generally, children were weaned at three. In the ancient Near East. In other words, it's been three years since, since the birth of no mercy. And then after three years, she conceives and bears a son that they then name not my people. Do, do you hear it? God's still merciful and he's still patient. He still delays. He still is, is patient with the wicked. God gives his people opportunity to repent, to turn from their wickedness, to seek his face. He gives Israel this chance to, to give herself wholeheartedly to God. You ever noticed how God is more patient than we think he should be? I mean, not with us, I mean with other people, right? With, when it comes to other people, we think, is he not paying attention? Has he not seen the wickedness? Why is he? Where's the zap? Like, where's the crush? Where's the destruction? Now, I mean, God, you should be more patient with me. I mean, I'm trying. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a sinner. 
I just need you to be patient, right? I mean, we, that's what we do. Now, some of, us, some of us do the opposite. Some of us wish he was more patient with others and, and wish he was less patient with us because we sort of feel like I need the two by four. That's really what I need. But there's this picture here of a merciful God who still is patient, calling his people to repentance. Still slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And it just fell off again. This chapter doesn't change that. The names are God's judgment on his people. The judgment is a warning. Lastly, the warning is grace. Look at the end of chapter 1 and and verse 1 of chapter 2. Israel is about to be destroyed by Assyria. And for the most part, really, Israel will no longer exist. Um, they, they don't, it's not like they're carried into exile and then they come back the way Judah does. Um, Israel as a, as, a, as a nation, in terms of the northern and southern kingdom. Now, when Judah comes back, we call her Israel and she becomes Israel. And that's the Israel that continues. But Israel is about to be destroyed. The northern kingdom is about to be defeated by Assyria. You know, Hosea's prophecy is both word and action, right? I mentioned last week that, um, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, what if you got a thousand words and a picture? Because that's what you're getting in Hosea. It's not just what he says, but his life, he lives out before the watching eyes of the people the very message that he has for the people of God. He's, he's living out this, this, this relationship or breaking relationship between God and, and Israel. And, and certainly Gomer represents the people. Or at least represents Israel. But why all this focus on the children? Why all this attention given to the children and their names? Because if the real aim of the book of Hosea is to say that Hosea is faithful to Gomer, despite the fact that she's unfaithful, uh, despite her her, uh, unfaithfulness to Hosea, then it seems like this is a waste of a chapter. And so what we find then is that, um, by the way, that's one of my one of my struggles with that redeeming love book, which is now also a movie, is that it focuses on an aspect of the book of Hosea that really I don't think is the focus of the book of Hosea. Because I'm pretty convinced that Gomer actually represents the leaders of the people of Israel and the children represent the regular people of Israel. Gomer sort of is the picture of the kings and the priests who are supposed to be leading the people in righteousness. And the people are merely going the way of their leaders. They're guilty too, but they're following those who are supposed to be given for their care and protection and righteousness. 
And that explains why these children are called children of whoredom back in verse 2. They aren't themselves prostitutes, but they are serving other gods and pagan gods in the way they're, they're representing the people in their pursuit of other gods. They're just as wayward as Gomer ever is. And yet, when you get to verse 10, there's hope. Did you notice that? I mean, I'm going to break her in the valley of Jezreel. No more mercy on her. Not my people. You expect verse 10 to say, she will be crushed and and be no more. That's not what it says. Yet the people of Israel, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. There's hope. All of a sudden, at the end of all this judgment and warning, there's hope. There's a a picture of God's grace. You ever wondered, you ever asked the question, some of you actually asked me this question, and I'm not sure I gave you a half-decent answer. So here's my answer. If that's you, here's my answer. What happens to Israel after this? Assyria comes, defeats the northern kingdom... Then what? What happens to those people? Well, the reality is they essentially become Gentiles. They, they, they leave and become mixed in with those who aren't Judah, who aren't among God's people, right? They become mixed in with the Gentiles and they're treated like the Gentiles. Well, then the next obvious question should be, well, how does God treat Gentiles? Turn with me to Romans chapter Nine, and we find his answer. Romans chapter nine, uh, verse nineteen. Uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is uh, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, for he, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he quotes Hosea 1. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Paul uses Hosea 1 verses 10 and 11 as comfort and encouragement for the church. God is growing his kingdom, not just from Judah, because they're so much better than everybody else. But the promise of of Hosea 1, 10 and 11 is for you. We are Gentiles. We are outsiders. We are the ones brought in by God's saving grace and mercy. How is he going to save? How will he redeem? Well, 
back in verse 11 of Hosea 1. The children of Judah, the children of Israel shall be gathered together. It won't be by war. It won't be by sword. It won't be by military. Instead, it'll be under one head who is Christ himself. Salvation in Christ is for everyone. The reality is we all are scattered because of sin. We all are guilty and defeated and and dead because of our guilt. And yet he will bring us up from the land. It's a, a picture of resurrection and give us life. And he will do that in Christ. God brings salvation to those who are already dead. We were at one time not his people, but now in Christ we are his people. We were at one time not brothers and sisters, and now we are brothers and sisters in Christ and with Christ, the family of God. We were at one time those who had no mercy. But because he is a gracious and loving, abounding in steadfast love and mercy and patience, we have received mercy. The hope of deliverance in Hosea is for us. Would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in us. Uh, use your word to draw us to gratefulness, thankfulness for a salvation that is not earned, and that is not deserved, that is all of the mercy of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to atone for, to pay the debt that our sin deserves, the, to satisfy divine justice, to deal with our guilt, to make us your people. And we pray that we would, as your people, uh, be thankful for the mercy and grace that we have received, that we would be patient and loving and kind with others, and that we would be messengers of this hope of salvation to a lost world. We ask all this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.